is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. You got into business to pursue your passion, not to worry about insurance. But the reality is every business faces risks and you need to make sure that your business is protected. Insurance doesn't have to be complicated and learning some basic risk mitigation principles like how to develop a business continuity plan can go a long way. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools. Visit sovereigninsurance.ca to learn more. I landed a contract in Italy, but I need five freelancers to make it happen. I said, sure, let's chat over coffee. With Export Development Canada, risk doesn't stop you. EDC, take on the world. This podcast is brought to you by the new Scotiabank Passport Visa Infinite Business Card. Your business is going places and so are you. Apply now and earn up to $500 in bonus rewards. For details, visit scotiabank.com slash passport business. Conditions apply. You're listening to The Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. On the Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality even faster. This podcast is presented in partnership with Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to the Thrive community. And subscribe to listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. I'm your host, Gomal Minhas, founder of CoreSpace, your one-stop shop for all things work, wellness, and impact. Visit kaur.space to find out more. I'm also the producer of Dream Girl, the documentary film showcasing the lives of inspiring and ambitious female entrepreneurs that we premiered at the Obama White House. I'm so happy to be here today. Welcome to the show. We're so thrilled to have Aaron Burry on the Thrive Podcast show today. Aaron Burry is an entrepreneur, speaker, startup advisor, investor, and former technology journalist. In her most recent role, Aaron spent six years as managing director at 88, a Toronto-based creative communications agency that worked with clients including Lyft, Telus, and PayPal. She's also the co-founder of the County Wine Tours, a guided bicycle wine company in Prince Edward County. She's a board member at Save the Children Canada and a member of the Tech for Sick Kids Advisory Council for Sick Kids. Erin has been published in the New York Times, Forbes, CNN, and Canadian Business, where she writes about topics ranging from startup success, small business, and all things tech. Erin has been named one of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30. Wow. Erin, it is such a pleasure to have you here today on Thrive. 
Well, I'm so excited to be here. I love uh, talking to other powerful women about entrepreneurship and marketing, and uh, I think it's going to be a great discussion today. Absolutely. So I love to start with a back, your background story. What got you into this line of work? What made you dive headfirst into marketing? Great question. So for me, it was really uh, my parents. So my mom, uh, my parents both, both actually took journalism school or took journalism in school. And my dad pursued being a community newspaper reporter. And my mom went on to work in marketing at Nortel. And she got to go to all these cool trade shows and work on ad campaigns. And her job always seemed so glamorous. And so I always knew that I wanted to go to journalism school to learn the fundamentals of communicating and writing and, uh, you know, just all the things that journalism school teaches you, but I always had an aspiration of graduating and going into marketing. And it wasn't until my last year in university that I was exposed to public relations as a practice within marketing and kind of fell in love with it. And so that's what I decided to do when I pursued, uh, when I graduated. And it's interesting because now I'm so tied to startups and entrepreneurship, but I actually aspire to work in a fortune 500 brand. That was kind of my dream is to work within a large organization and entrepreneurship really wasn't on my radar because back in, you know, when I was going to high school in the early 2000s, entrepreneurship wasn't cool like it is today. Mark Zuckerberg hadn't yet founded Facebook and we didn't really have those examples for startup success. So uh, it wasn't until much later that I got into entrepreneurship and startups. And it certainly wasn't an aspiration as I was growing up. That's incredible. I find that even in in J school, as as you know, uh, or as the audience might know, I'm also a J school grad. Um, but in second year, it kind of hit me that I, I wasn't meant for traditional journalism. It was when digital media was coming up more. Digital marketing was really uh, coming to a head. And we were seeing the impact that social media and the digital world was going to have on marketing and journalism. And so I knew that my career was going to be a hybrid of things. And it seems to be the same way for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, my, you asked about kind of my career journey. And so I, I graduated school. I went into PR working at a midsize agency. And then I went to, as, to work as a second employee at a startup called Sprouter, which was a, a social network for entrepreneurs. Uh, and so that was really my introduction into the entrepreneurship world and the startup world. And I spent a few years there and really loved it and was more so on the, the marketing communication side of it, handling events and PR and, uh, you know, blogging and things like that. Uh, but after a few years, I uh, switched gears into being on the founding team of BetaKit, which is now kind of Canada's stock top startup publication, uh, managing the editorial team there and really diving into a role as a full-time journalist. And, uh, you know, as someone who aspired to be in marketing, it was kind of weird to go back to my, my journalistic roots. Uh, I really enjoyed that experience, but it definitely gave me a ton of respect for, for full-time journalists and, and how stressful it can be. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, these days there's such a blurred line between journalism and marketing. And you see so many former journalists jumping into brand journalism and content marketing and uh, so it's really great to have those fundamental skills because they're so applicable uh, pretty much anywhere today. Absolutely. And I'm so curious because uh, we, we're sim in similar fields, but what makes you so passionate about storytelling and, and marketing and journalism? Uh, what about it gets you going? You know, it's interesting. I, I thought going to journalism school that I was not the typical journalist because I was someone who wanted to pursue marketing and I wasn't that person who wanted to go be a foreign correspondent like all of my classmates. But I realized later on as I started, you know, interviewing all of these entrepreneurs and even just meeting with, with startup founders, I have the innate curiosity that's necessary to be a great journalist. And that 
often plays out in me meeting someone and asking them a million questions about their startup journey. Where did you get the idea? What did you want to be when you grew up? And how did you start the company? Where did you go first for funding or advice? And I find myself playing 20 questions when I meet people. And I think that comes from the the journalistic training of just being innately curious. And that's what I really love about storytelling is this, uh, this idea of being able to pull out that thread of a narrative from someone's story and to really encapsulate the larger mission behind a company through storytelling. And the human interest side of journalism is really what was taught to us in school, as I'm sure you remember. You know, every news story on the 11 o'clock news kicks off with, you know, not a a news story, but a person who was affected by that. And I think that's what I really love about storytelling is at its core, startups and entrepreneurship is all about people, people who are solving problems, people who are solving new problems or old problems in a new way. And I love pulling out the narrative around why they're doing it, the problem they face that led them to do it and kind of shaping that into something they can use in their external communications. And I think it's so valuable because it's often the marketer's responsibility um, and job to remind startup founders and startups that it is about the individual story. It's about your customer. It's about your founder. People want to know the backstory. And it's part of our job to convince them that their story is valuable. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times their story is the only thing that makes them unique or that stands out because I found, you know, when I was a journalist, I was receiving so many pitches from startup founders and they all had one thing in common. They all, you know, they thought that them, themselves existing was news, right? They would email and say, hey, I'm Joe Schmo. I'm the founder of this startup. We just launched and you should write about us. And what they really missed out on is the why. Why should I care about you? And more importantly, why should my readers care about you? And so I think with when I work with startup founders, it's helping them understand that storytelling is not telling you what your company does. Storytelling is weaving a larger narrative around why you're doing what you're doing, why it matters in the current context of today's trends or today's landscape and ultimately how it affects the readers of that publication. And if you can do that, when you reach out to to media to get it, uh, to send a pitch, you'll be infinitely more successful. Absolutely. So would you say that when you're looking at developing a strong PR and marketing campaign or strategy as a company, it's really important to indicate the why? Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, it's one of the only things that helps you stand out as a startup. I think for anyone who's done public relations or tried to capture the attention of media when working for a large brand, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to get someone to open your email. If you work at Shopify or Google or Amazon, it's a lot harder when you're an unknown entity that's reaching out. And so that's when the story really becomes compelling. Is it that you used to work at Google and you left to start this company? Is it that you've raised a bunch of money or you've partnered? with someone interesting or, you know, you have a really high profile user. Those are the types of things that are going to stand out and, and capture the attention of journalists because really they, they don't know you from Adam. They haven't heard your company name before. So, and they probably don't know you and they don't know your, your name in their inbox. So even just getting them to, to pay attention and to open your email is half the battle. And so when you're thinking or when our audience is thinking about the best ways to get the media to pay attention to them and get their story out there, what, what tips do you have for them beyond what we've discussed? Yeah, I think the, I think really the first step is thinking about who you're trying to reach through media coverage, because there tends to be this duality, these dual goals for, for startups and entrepreneurs who are trying to get media coverage. Some of them really want to reach customers. So let's say, for example, they have um, a, a product for parents. You know, their customers are reading 
Today's Parent and Chatelaine and publications like that and maybe watching The Social or Marilyn Dennis while they're off on maternity or paternity leave. Uh, but those founders will come to me and say, I really want to be in Betakit or I really want to be in TechCrunch. And they forget that their customers aren't reading the same publications that they read, but there often is a secondary goal of stakeholder engagement. So getting coverage in those technology or industry publications in order to attract the attention of investors or potential partners or even potential employees if you're trying to prove that you're a cool company and people should come work for you. So I think the place to start is by defining, you know, who, what are your goals for media coverage? Is it to sell more of your product or service to your end customer? Is it to position yourself well to investors? Is it to attract the best talent in Toronto because everyone wants to work at Shopify and no one really knows who you are and so you need to build your employer brand? And then from there, you can kind of build out what are the publications that will reach those audiences? So if my customer is you know, a 25-year-old millennial who loves you know, fashion, they're probably reading a much different publication than that parent that I mentioned before. So th that kind of fundamental work is really important. It's not just about emailing any and every journalist that you come across with your story and spraying and praying. It's about starting with the why. What, why do I want media coverage? What am I trying to achieve? What are the best media outlets to achieve that through? Who are the people that are writing about those things at those publications? And how can I craft a pitch that, again, isn't just about me. It's about why my story is interesting in the larger context of today's trends or what the readers care about. So it's maximizing purpose and impact versus maybe just that ego um, ego push that can sometimes come when it comes to media and coverage, especially in the entrepreneurship space. For sure. I mean, it's also about remembering that it's okay to want PR coverage for your ego. We've worked mm. with lots of people who say, listen, it's been my dream to be on Marilyn Dennis since I was a kid. And I would love to be on Marilyn Dennis just because I think it would be really cool. And it would be checking off an item on the bucket list. And that's okay. But just be honest with yourself about why you want that media coverage and, and we'll still help you achieve it. But, uh, you know, you kind of have to be honest with yourself about whether it's achieving one of your goals or whether it's just feeding your own ego. Uh, and listen, there's still a cachet to being in traditional media. Everyone wants to, that article in the Globe and Mail so they can frame it on their wall and so that all of their friends from high school will, will think that they're successful on Facebook. So I, I understand the motive, the personal motivations that founders have to be in those publications, but I always try to caution them that, listen, it's not going to help you get a million sales if your customer is 17-year-old guys, you know? Hmm. So it's about balancing both of those things. And, and honestly, I guess it's actually just being true to yourself about what your intention is and what outcomes you're seeking when you are reaching out for specific media. For sure. And I think the, the biggest challenge that we faced um, at 88 was really education. I think there's a big misconception around what public relations actually is. People assume that it's Samantha Jones on Sex and the City organizing parties, and that's really publicity, uh, or they assume that it's, you know, just getting them an article in the Globe and Mail, which it can be, but it can also be securing speaking engagements, applying for awards, really just any communication to stakeholder communities. And there's a lot of miseducation around or misunderstandings around the, the role that PR plays and how to actually be successful with it. So for example, a lot of founders would call us up and say, hey, you know, I really want to hire you for, for a PR campaign. And we'd say, okay, great. Well, what are your goals for that campaign? 
campaign. And they'd say, well, to sell a bunch of my, my thing. And you'd say, well, you know, PR is sure it's about sales. You can absolutely drive sales from PR, but it's going to be a little bit of a hockey stick bump. And it's not going to be a consistent, predictable source of sales. What PR is great at though, is legitimacy and brand building and stakeholder engagement. Uh, and if you're only interested in sales, then you're probably better putting your money into, you know, Google AdWords or Facebook ads or something where you see a very clear input of money and a very clear output of ROI because PR can be very intangible and it can be about perception and not necessarily uh, a set number of purchases for a set spend. So I think that's, that's really key is understanding what PR actually is, the role it plays and what you should get out of it. And that's why I spend so much of my time going to startup accelerators and co-working spaces and VC firms and talking to their companies about the role of PR, what it actually is and you know how to go about it in the right way, because there tends to be a lot of um, misconceptions about it. So could you further differentiate for us a little bit when you, when we are talking marketing and PR, what, what are the differentiators there? I find I myself sit in a gray zone sometimes when I'm thinking of my marketing budget and thinking of how much of this do I invest in PR and why should I invest it in PR? For sure. So the way I think about it is that PR is communications to your external audiences. So your investors, your partners, your uh, your employee, potential employees, your potential customers. Whereas to me, marketing is, uh, you know, really getting people into the top of the funnel and kind of nurturing them and, and retaining them as customers and incentivizing referrals. So it's really about um, engaging people along that funnel. And it's not necessarily about the outward communication. I mean, marketing absolutely can be public facing, especially when you're trying to get people to be interested in it. Uh, but PR is never about communicating. I mean, it can be about communicating with your existing customers, but marketing to me is like email marketing to your existing customers and promos and landing pages and uh, you know advertising and all of those types of things. The other distinction I would make is that public relations, yes, you're paying for the time of a public relations professional. So you're paying for an agency to handle your public relations or you're paying for someone in-house to handle it for you, but you're, you're really aiming for what we call earned media, which is if I get an article in the Globe and Mail, I'm aiming to get that written about me without having to pay for that placement. It's not an advertisement. It's a piece of earned media. Whereas I think about marketing as really paid ways of driving traffic. So I think that's a key differentiation as well. So uh, in a lot of ways, PR can lead to your customers getting to the top of that marketing sales funnel. Um, and it's that public exposure externally, and then it can drive your marketing uh, even further. So it can make even more for your marketing dollars, even though it isn't necessarily paid for advertising and, and media opportunities. Absolutely. And I think they definitely work in tandem. So I'll give you an example of that. My husband owns a company called Willful, which does online wills and estate planning. And, you know, he does all of the typical marketing stuff that you would imagine for an online tool. He runs Google AdWords to capture people when they're searching on Google. He runs Facebook and Instagram ads. He does email marketing to his existing customers to, or signups to help them convert. Uh, and we handled PR for his launch and got a really great piece of coverage on global news. And to date, the referral traffic from global news, from the, the news segment, has converted way higher than any other source that he's had. Wow. And that to me, it doesn't tell me that everyone just watched that Google news or global news piece and bought a will because of it. What it tells me is people are finding out about his company. Maybe they're finding it on Google. They're going to the website. They're checking it out. And then they're doing a bit of digging online. Is this legitimate? Is this a service I would want to use? And they're finding press coverage. And 
that press coverage gives it legitimacy because it's somebody else, a trusted resource talking about his company and highlighting why, why it's great instead of Kevin talking about why Willful is great. So that can also be a really great function of PR is once you've gotten someone into the top of the funnel through all of your great marketing activities, they're using PR to provide legitimacy. You know, if you've ever gone to a website and you see as appeared in and a bunch of media logos, that probably immediately makes you trust those people because if, you know, they were on the Today Show or they were featured in the Globe and Mail, you think to yourself, oh, well, they must be legitimate. So that is kind of one example of a function that PR can play to actually close, you know, move someone further down the funnel and actually close the sale uh, because it's providing that legitimacy. But PR can also definitely drive people into the top of the funnel. You know, if someone was watching global news that night when the piece was on, they probably went on to, you know, we definitely saw a spike in traffic that day as well. So there's kind of this initial spike of traffic from a piece of PR coverage. And then there's this residual value of people who find that coverage as they're researching your product or service. And that can be really valuable. It's so fascinating because I find we're in such an age of um, the social influencer uh, economy and and that being a big part of people's marketing and PR strategies. But it's so uh, refreshing to hear that traditional media still plays uh, a critical role um, in our overall exposure strategies in this legitimacy piece. Um, How have you found that this uh, growth of influencer marketing has shifted perceptions around traditional media? Oh, it's a great question because, I mean, my first role at a PR agency was in 2007. And back then it really was a traditional media landscape. And that's about it. You know, your clients were gunning for an article in the Globe and Mail and podcasts weren't really a thing. And bloggers were just starting to emerge and the term influencer marketing didn't really even exist. Uh, And now fast forward, you know, 12 years later and the media landscape has shifted so much. And just like we were talking about how the lines between journalism and content marketing have really blurred the lines between traditional earned media coverage and you know advertising has really blurred as well and now when you're thinking about your overarching PR program it it usually can't just exist within traditional earned media because there are so few publications in Canada you've probably seen headlines about layoffs and and challenges in the media industry so there are fewer people writing about fewer stories and so it's it's tougher to get coverage these days and uh, and there are also so many publications that rely on sponsored content or advertorials or or these social influencers who are a great way to tell your story but they're not traditional media outlets so when we talk to clients or when I'm advising companies I always say you know while Well, PR can be free other than the time it takes to secure it. If you're thinking about a cohesive strategy to launch your brand or to launch an announcement in 2019, that has to include an element of paying for influencers to talk about your product. It's probably going to include some element of an advertorial or sponsored piece of content, and it's probably going to include earned media. So it's definitely become this more hybrid mix of tactics versus just pitching the globe and hoping they write about you. So interesting. I'm loving this conversation. Um, So when an entrepreneur is looking to work with a PR company, um, what do you recommend? Like, do they shop around? How do they find the company that's going to suit them well um, and pull the trigger with working with them? This is a great question because it's so difficult to 
assess and find a great PR agency for you. And I know that because I often speak to entrepreneurs who say, oh, I worked with this agency and I didn't like the experience. And I'll ask them why. And they usually say, oh, because, you know, I felt like they, I never knew what they were working on or they didn't get me the results I wanted. And when I dig deeper on on the type of firm they worked with, it always becomes clear that it was just the wrong fit for them. Uh, And to me, there's, there's questions that entrepreneurs and startups or anyone really hiring a vendor like a PR agency should be asking to do their due diligence. And those are questions like, you know, how, how big is your firm? What, and what is your average client size? If I'm walking into a firm and their average client size is Coca-Cola and I'm, you know, Joe startup, am I really going to get the attention and care uh, versus that large client? Probably not. Uh, so to me, I always say it's it's better to be a large client, uh, the largest client at a small agency than the smallest client at a big agency. So looking at agency size is, is a key part of it. The second question I would ask is who's actually going to be working on my account day to day? Because I, you know, I've seen it a million times. People get pitches from agencies and they get the song and dance from the most senior person or from a, a senior vice president. But the people actually working on the account day to day are probably much more junior. So it's always important to meet the people who will be working on the account day to day and understand that distribution of work and how easily you'll be able to access that senior strategic advice when you need it. The next question is around connections and and industry focus. So if I'm a real estate startup, I'm probably not going to want to work with an arts and entertainment agency that only works with museums and art galleries and, and charity galas. I'm probably going to want to find an agency that understands the real estate space, that's worked with clients similar to me in the past, and that has relationships with media in that space. Because really, PR effective PR agencies, their stock and trade is relationships. They are able to get journalists to talk to them because they form these relationships over time. So you want to make sure that agency you hire has relationships with the right people who are going to be telling your story. Uh, And then the other thing I would be asking you is about geography. So if my goal is to get a bunch of coverage in the United States because my target, you know, launch city is New York City, I want to know, do you have relationships in the States or where are your relationships strongest? Where do you have offices and where do you have people? Uh, And can you actually get me coverage in the physical area or city that I want coverage in? Uh, And those are just a few of the kind of starting questions that I would have. But in my experience, and I mean, listen, we've pitched tons of entrepreneurs over the years, very few are actually asking these types of questions. And, you know, the onus is on us as agencies to be straightforward and to tell people what they're getting into and to to say no to clients when they're not the right fit. But I would hope that we can work to educate clients more and entrepreneurs more. So they're walking into the room with a list of questions that helps them vet who's right for them. Wonderful. And when it comes to deciding when the right time is to work with a PR agency, what advice would you give? Like when, how long should you keep your PR push in house? Um, and when should you pull the trigger to work with an external agency? Great question. I mean, you can absolutely be successful doing PR in-house forever without ever hiring an agency. I was in, worked in-house at a startup handling PR, and there are a ton of benefits to that. You have someone who's working solely on your company uh, and telling your story day in, day out, instead of an agency where we are working on multiple clients all the time, and it can be challenging to, to, to find the time for everything. Um, I think the question comes down to 
how much time do you have as a founder or as someone who's, you know, managing that person? And what is your capacity to mentor, train, and educate that person that you bring in-house? Because most startup founders are hiring a PR person who's not a super senior 20 years under their belt veteran. They're hiring junior folks who need mentorship and guidance. And most founders, not all, but most are not PR professionals themselves. So I always recommend to founders, if you don't have time to devote to doing PR yourself, or you don't have the time and expertise to devote to hiring and managing someone internally, then it's always a good idea to hire an agency. The other example where it would be good to outsource is if you're in a time crunch. So let's say, for example, you get a really great partnership with a big brand and you want to announce it right away, uh, you probably won't have time to hire someone, train them and onboard them in time to announce that. So agencies are really great at being able to kind of hit the ground running because they have those existing relationships in place. Uh, But I mean, I'm always a fan of kind of comparing the costs and not just the cost of someone's salary, benefits and compensation package working internally, also the cost of your time to work with that internal person uh, versus the cost of an agency's fees, but maybe the reduction in the onus on your time. Mm, That's a really important cost benefit analysis to do. so, because often I can, I'm uh, guilty of this myself of wanting to keep things in house a little bit longer than I should because I'm just like, no, we got this, we got this. When really it's like someone else can do this so much better on our behalf. And yes, it's maybe a little bit more cost like expensive, but I never, uh, as a founder, sometimes I forget to put in the value of my own time, uh, the monetary value of my own time when I'm making that analysis. So that was an awesome reminder for that. I know that for a lot of founders, or or individuals within companies who represent those companies publicly, um, getting news media coverage cannot be the most fun experience. There are founders who are naturals in front of camera or for interviews and things like that, but there are others who struggle with it tremendously. So what advice do you have for them? So say they've pitched media and they've gotten those interviews. How do they prep well to get their messaging across um, when it's maybe not their wheelhouse? That's such a great question because... I feel like most people forget about this part of the equation. So they're desperate to get coverage in the Globe and Mail or to get onto CTV. And then somebody writes back and says, actually, I really do like the story. Can you come in for an, an on-air interview in you know four hours? And they panic because they had never considered that someone would actually say yes and that they would have to go on TV and speak articulately and succinctly about their company. And so this is something that I think is really important when we talk about the foundational things you need to do before you ever reach out to a journalist practice your kind of interview style. We do what we call media training, which is defining the key messages that we want to get across and working with entrepreneurs or founders or whoever the spokesperson might be to practice those those Q&A. Because if you're going on TV for the first time and it's live and you haven't practiced your answers, you're probably not going to come across as polished. And if you've ever seen a politician or a seasoned CEO do a media interview, there's a reason that they always are on message, that they're able to deflect difficult questions and get them back onto their own agenda, and that they, you know, they don't have a lot of ums and ahs and pauses because they've been media trained to the nines. And it is a skill. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're someone who's terrified of speaking to media, I think it's okay to remember that it doesn't have to be you as the spokesperson if you're the founder or the CEO. It can be, you know, a VP who's really great with media 
media. Uh, it can also be an external spokesperson. So, you know, we work with a lot of clients where they say, you know, we're not the best people to tell this story. Let's say they're, um, they're launching a product for for millennial women, but the founder is a 45-year-old male. Maybe he's not the best spokesperson to be talking about the habits of millennial women. So maybe we're engaging, you know, an influential <laughs> millennial blogger or expert uh, to go on, on air and talk about those things. So I think it's kind of like public speaking. You know, every time I talk to entrepreneurs about whether they want to do public speaking or to speak at conferences, a lot of times they get this look of fear in their eyes. And it's like, listen, you don't have to, right? You don't have to, to speak publicly. A lot of people want to, because it's a great way to share your message and to build thought leadership. But if you don't want to do it and you're absolutely terrified, that's okay. Recognize that and pass it off to someone else. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, one of my tricks for myself is if there's a new keynote or if there are specific uh, key points I need to like get into my mind, I just open a voice note on my phone, record it, and then play it as I'm getting ready for the event or whatever it is over and over and over again. So I just hear it in my own voice. And I found that to be really helpful without external training, but to do it up myself. Um, a bit of a DIY for our audience members as a little tip there. Um, but before we, it, we're going to move into another section of questions here, but I wanted to wrap up this conversation around the PR and marketing aspect of things. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs uh, and female entrepreneurs specifically for really making an impact with their stories and with their PR campaigns? How do they really stand out um, in a world saturated by so many stories right now? So in a, at a time like this around International Women's Day, everyone is talking about women and they're profiling female entrepreneurs and they're looking for inspirational stories of women doing great things. And so really the question to ask yourself is, what is unique about my entrepreneurship journey or my story as a female founder? And what are those times of year or opportunities where people are naturally going to be talking about the experience of female entrepreneurs? Maybe this is around International Women's Day. Maybe it's around Small Business Week in October. Maybe it's around Mother's Day because you're a mom and that's a really key part of your story as an entrepreneur. So a lot of PR is not just having an interesting story, but understanding what journalists are already talking about at that time of year or seasonally or because it's in the news. So, you know, I'll give you an example. When I worked at that startup fresh out of university, we always used to sit or, or that uh, PR agency, sorry, we always used to sit around and brainstorm ideas for things like Mother's Day coverage or Mother's Day campaigns. And I always would say, isn't this kind of, aren't we always just brainstorming the same thing, coming up with ideas for Mother's Day? Can't we get more creative than that? And then after about a year, I realized that it wasn't because our team wasn't creative or we were lazy, it was that, Inevitably, every journalist is writing about Mother's Day when Mother's Day rolls around. Gift guide ideas, where to take your mom on Mother's Day, spa getaway ideas. Um, you know, tech founders share their how they were inspired by their mom. And similarly, that happens at any other time of year, like the holidays or you know Canada Day. So. Really, as a female entrepreneur, I would be looking at what are those inflection points where people are talking about entrepreneurship or female entrepreneurship specifically? And then what are those other holidays or seasonal trends, whether that's, you know, winter weather or spring cleaning or summer vacations that I can attach myself to to try to tell my story in a better way? Hmm. This makes me also bring up because it's an experience that I'm having now. I, I started a new uh, aspect of my company and I sometimes get in my head about um, 
is my story valuable or not? Is it is it worth sharing? Is it something people would want to read about? Um, or my work should speak loud, like should speak for itself. And I think a lot of founders can sometimes get in this rut where it's like the self-promotion can feel very um, icky, for lack of a better word in this moment. Um, how do you encourage uh, female entrepreneurs to move past that reluctance to be out in the world publicly or to share their success or to um, have it be out in the world in this way? That's such a great question and observation, and I completely agree. And I actually had an example of that just this past week. So we were working with a, a client uh, in the, the fashion space founded by a female entrepreneur called Grace. And as a part of our International Women's Day campaign, we were reaching out to successful businesswomen in our network to interview them about their personal style journey and to feature them on Grace's website and social channels uh, and really shine a spotlight on them. And I was shocked at how many of those women wrote me back and said, are you sure that you want to profile me? Aren't there so many other successful women that you could be profiling? I don't feel like I'm good enough or successful enough to be one of your profiled entrepreneurs or business people. And I was shocked because, Oh you my know, God, my heart. Yeah. And I would write back to them and say, Oh my goodness, of course you, you, first of all, you need to get rid of this self doubt. And second of all, like, yes, there's a reason I'm reaching out to you. And I think the, the bottom line is that you have to own your own success and you also have to own your own journey. Listen, most of entrepreneurship is not glamorous. It's not sexy. And it's not about sharing your successes, but I feel like you have to own your own experience. And you also have to remember that, listen, the person with an amazing personal brand, you know, when you read my intro, I've been featured in all these publications and I've spoken at all these places. It's not because I'm more successful or smarter or better than anybody else. It's because I say yes, or have said yes to every personal branding opportunity that has come my way. Because I recognized early on that as soon as I built my profile, I had a better network and more opportunities that came my way. And I saw this snowball effect of leaning in and saying yes. Uh, so I think it's, it's really about getting over this idea that you're not good enough and it's taking a risk and saying yes to that thing that you're a bit scared of uh, and kind of owning your struggles and your successes. I talk all the time about my failures, like our startup running out of money or getting laid off from post media. I mean, there are all these struggles that I've had in my career as well. And I think they're equally as important to share, but yeah, it really pains me when I see women just kind of shrinking back into themselves and not, not saying, yeah, I'm good enough for this profile. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I so appreciate that and resonate so deeply with that. Um, now, there is a question that I avoided, that I skipped over in my head earlier, but it's coming back because it's uh, very relevant, uh, I think, right now. And when we're talking about PR and traditional media, we didn't touch on social media at all. So I think it's important uh, to have you share when you are working with your clients and you are helping them get traditional media, what advice are you giving them right now about their social platforms, where to focus their energy, where to see the biggest returns in terms of their brand equity and brand building? Because also I think for traditional media, uh, they look at your handles to see how well are you doing? Um, are you you know, going to help impact our viewership as well? So it's this, uh, it's this um, symbiotic relationship in a lot of ways, but so what advice are you giving to your clients in the context of uh, 2019 around their social strategies? 
It's such a great question. And again, just like media has changed so much in the past 12 years, social has as well. I mean, when I took that job at that first startup, part of my role was social media. And this was, you know, December 2008, when Twitter was just becoming a thing and Instagram didn't exist yet. And uh, I remember we were covered in Forbes magazine just because we had a Twitter account. It was a roundup of small businesses (laughs) who were using Twitter. And that's what got us into Forbes because it was so anomalous back then and so unique to be a business that was actually using Twitter as part of their marketing mix. Now, 12 years later, the conversation is so different. It's almost like the conversation around having a website or a phone number 10 or 20 years ago. It's not a matter of if you're using social media, it's a matter of how you're using it and whether you're using it in a strategic way. So exactly like you said, I think a lot of people just use it as you know, kind of having a presence so that I'm Googleable and so that people can find me and ask questions. Whereas others use it as really their primary hub. Some fashion brands, for example, they don't even really need a website. They build all of their interests on, on Instagram and you can even shop directly from an Instagram photo these days. So I think my advice to people is always, you know, First of all, think about, again, your audience and where they hang out and really invest in one or two of the platforms that match that audience. Because most entrepreneurs that I meet try to boil the ocean. They try to have a presence on every single social channel from Pinterest, to Instagram to LinkedIn. And, you know, eight of them, eight out of the 10 are completely untouched and out of date. And maybe they maintain one or two of them. So I think it's being re- realistic with yourself about the time commitment that you have to manage these presences and then actually thinking about who. Who are are the people I'm trying to reach and which channels am I going to reach them through? And then kind of going with baby steps to actually launch your presence on those channels. And PR and, and social media actually work really well in tandem. I think a lot of entrepreneurs leverage their PR coverage by promoting those articles uh, using ad dollars on Facebook and Instagram. So they actually take the coverage that they have earned in the media, and then they put dollars behind it on their social platforms to actually promote it to their audience. So, uh, so we always advise startup founders to do that. Once you have coverage come out, that's not the end of the story. Then you should be, you know, putting it on your website and promoting it on social. And uh, if you don't have social channels, then yeah, it's going to be difficult for your customers to find you. So many good nuggets. I am so amped for our audience and also myself because I'm learning so many things. Um, We are going to wrap it up because I think this is uh, our longest interview so far, which I, like I said, could chat about this all day and there's so much to learn and you are, you have such a broad knowledge base and such a great resource for all of these uh, topics. So thank you so much for that. But our final question with all of our audience or all of our guests is this. And so what would your final piece of advice be for women of entrepreneurs to thrive in their careers and in their lives? I think my tip goes back to the question that you had about, um, about saying yes and, and, and building profile. The single biggest thing that has helped me be successful in my career is focusing on my personal brand and investing the time to grow my network. Uh, you know, I think it's something that you're forced to do as an entrepreneur because you don't have you know, a hundred colleagues to go out with at night or to attend events with, and you're inherently kind of thrust into putting yourself out there and, uh, you know, investing in things like, uh, great social profiles or a personal website or investing in thought leadership topics that you are contributing to relevant publications or even speaking engagements and getting on stage at conferences. These things all really pay off in your network. And your network is really there as a security blanket. It's almost like career insurance. When I was laid off, I yes, I was sad for about 
two hot seconds. And then I thought, you know what, this is an opportunity. And luckily I have this great network that I've invested in building and that I always do favors for and put time and energy into. So I don't, I'm not worried because as soon as I put it out to my network that I'm looking, I know good things will come my way. And so if you're an entrepreneur who feels like you're alone, who feels like you're struggling, uh, find that, that tribe or that group of people that you can commiserate with and share your struggles with and take the time to invest in building your network through coffee meetings and events uh, and other opportunities so that you have that career insurance if you decide to do something new one day. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Erin, for all of your insights today for this uh, wonderful conversation. I loved it. The entire, like, I can't even express how grateful I am for this episode and for all of the information that our audience is getting. Um, So thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thrive and Startup Canada are so happy to have had you. Thank you so much, Kamal. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC and Scotiabank for helping us elevate women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook resources for women entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rivers Corbett. Make sure to visit CoreSpace, K-A-U-R dot space to learn to better integrate work, wellness and impact into your everyday life. Until next time, I'm Gomal Minhas. It's time to thrive.